Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. The Maritime Ireland radio show is about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development, so important to this island nation, for its connection with the sea is as old as time itself, a fundamental part of Ireland socially and economically. Maritime Ireland is a maritime audio journal, broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcast, bringing together the community of the sea, where everyone is welcome. Ross Blair has been a, a real shining star, I think, for the country the last uh, two months, ensuring our supply chains are kept going during this COVID and Brexit situation. That's Glenn Carr, General Manager of Ross Lair Europort, arguably now Ireland's premier port linking the country to Europe. There's been an amazing change there. It's so busy, ships arriving and departing throughout the day and night. And next month, it will have 36 ferry services a week. Ross Lair, its physical location on the County Wexford coastline, just breeds the atmosphere of the sea, with its ferry port, great lifeboat tradition, lovely beach and a maritime museum, just some of what makes it a town of the sea. I've reported on many news events at Ross Lair, departed and arrived there by ferry many times, in varying weather conditions. Despite occasionally being the target of criticism, there always seemed to me to be a positive attitude amongst the staff at Ross Lair. A year ago on my previous programme, This Island Nation, I talked to Glenn Carr about the five-year plan developed to improve Ross Lair, costed at around €35 million. Euros. He was foreseeing the impact which Brexit would have, and how right he was. Picture in your mind's eye now what Rosslair is like today, as from the port he describes busy as it is compared to a year ago, very much freight focused right now, but also planning for the return of ferry passengers when that occurs. We'll be going to 36 services to the continent uh, to and from Rosslair every week from the 4th of April. So uh, an unbelievable change from a year ago. In the first two months, total ship visits are up 47%. Continental freight up 476%. Combined freight, uh, UK and Europe, plus 51 overall at the port. UK freight is down 43%. Very challenging at the moment with the UK particularly with the Brexit, reflected also in Dublin where, where, where volumes are substantially down. But overall, combined freight going through the port already year-to-date compared to the same time last year, we're up 51%, so a phenomenal result. Uh, and Ross Lair has been a, a real shining star, I think, for the country the last uh, two months, ensuring our supply chains are kept going during this COVID and Brexit situation. It does make you the premier port, really, for serving uh, into the continent, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely now we're number one port in Ireland for direct railroad services to Europe. I mean, we would represent now 
the, the well in excess of probably 75 to 80% of services in roll-on, roll-off now going out of the country are going out of Ross Lair. This time last year, January and February, uh, we would have had about 3,300 units going to Europe through the port, nearly 19,000 this year for the same period. Then a line which had three services a week. And with a primary operator to Europe out of Ross Lair, they had three services a week going to Cherbourg. They doubled that to six now they have. The FDS brought in a new service six times a week going to Dunkirk. That's proven to be so popular that from the 1st of January, they're adding a fourth vessel that's going to eight services a week. Brittany Ferries, they build out twice weekly, going really well. And they brought forward their two other services. They brought forward a Cherbourg service uh, once a week and a new service from uh, San Malo, Roscoff to Rosslare, which commenced there a, a few weeks ago. It must be an amazing scene at Rosslare these days then. You can come down to Rosslare now any day and at any time and you'll see activity and vessels in the port. Uh, and that's something that we hadn't seen that level of ships coming and going. And the frequency is great for the country. You think back to last year, this time last year, in terms of roll-on, roll-off, there were only six services operating out of the country. Three out of Dublin with Irish ferries, three out of Rosslare, Stena, both going to Cherbourg, and both going on the same three days. So not a lot of choice there for customers, a great choice for the customer, for the haulage industry, our exporters and importers, to have that level of frequency. We're actually seeing more laden, uh, imported uh, uh, freight coming in, which is really a good indicator that supply chains have shifted from the land bridge. Uh, and big companies, major global companies now, we're seeing uh, their freight coming through on a daily basis. So uh, I think it's been well, really well received uh, by by industry. Uh, and, and certainly I know uh, Rosslare has been a, a lead force in, in ensuring that our supply chains have been kept going in the last two months. Finally, Glenn, that's all to do, as you say, with freight nowadays um, because there's no travel, really, ferry purposes for passengers are really not a thing at the moment. But if that resumes, it's it's hard to contemplate the, the huge pressure that you'll have in moving ships in and out. We're planning for the return of passengers and we also need to plan for the return of a certain amount of UK freight because it is down quite substantial. Um, I mean, we're operating less 43% from where we were. We know there's a percentage that won't be coming back that's moved to the land bridge. But there's still a, a bit of UK freight to come back. I mean, the good news is year to date, um, 98% of ships have been turned around on time. So we've been managing the situation really well. We've recruited additional people. They were well, they were recruited there mid last year, trained up. We've got an additional tugs in, machinery in. We work very closely, Tom, with the shipping lines and scheduling the vessels. So we've, we've, we've staggered the vessels throughout the day. And I think that's good from a customer's point of view. It's also good from an operational point of view. We have new loading procedures in place, traffic management procedures in place. Bear in mind, we've had to do this all through a pandemic as well. So we really, we really had to make sure we had really strong COVID procedures in place to protect our staff levels. We are looking to go 24 hours. There's still there's still availability in the port, not at the not at what used to be known as the traditional peak times, but we have the availability to take in even additional vessels. We just started on master plan as well. We're investing close to 35, 40 million in additional uh, reconfiguration of the port that will give us additional space. But we've managed to create additional space where we are at the moment. Um, and, and it's really about making sure that we, we keep the traffic moving efficiently through the port. And we've worked closely with the 
estate agencies and that with the Gardaí and that and keeping that going. We're really excited. I mean, we're not going to see passengers back now in 2021 uh, to any great degree, if, if any at all. But we're very excited for next year. Um, the new routes, the new services, I mean, uh, particularly the Dunkirk route, believe it or not, is, is attracting a lot of potential tourism opportunity, particularly with the camper van market. I mean, the, the European Camper Club, nearly one million members across Europe, have already been in touch about the potential of this new service when it happens. Stand aligned with our extra three services with Brittany, the extra services going into Cherbourg. We'll give real choice to the holiday maker and the passenger uh, when they're allowed to come back. And there's extra capacity on the vessels. You look what Stella does. They brought in the Estridge, their newest ships. When passengers return to that vessel, I mean, they're going to be getting a five-star experience on board. So I think there's really exciting opportunities for the development of passenger business. Once this is all over, I think the shipping lines are in a unique position to offer people a different experience of travel as against going by plane. And I think people will want that where they'll have much more space on board. And because of the quality of the vessels that are being brought now into Ross Lair, the onboard experience is going to be something if you haven't travelled on the vessel before or it's a long time since you've travelled on it, I think we'll be a whole new experience for that person uh, or the family. And it's a great opportunity for Ross Lair uh, because obviously what we know is, is that uh, the more tourists we can bring in, the, the, the better that is, not just for the traffic in the port, but for the region as well. So we're working closely and we will uh, be working very closely with the various tourism boards uh, to link in what experience can be offered by the country uh, to, to the new markets as undoubtedly they will open up. We've managed to move and keep everything moving very quickly and very efficiently through the port. And we'll do the same when the passengers come back to make sure they have a good experience when using the port because it's really important that uh, for people who are going to be using the port now that we can demonstrate you will move through it quickly uh, and efficiently. I mean, that's the whole concept of Ross Lair. Glenn Carr, General Manager at Rosslare Europort and also at Irish Rail Freight, a story of positive development essential to Ireland's supply lines as an island nation, but also looking to the future when it becomes possible for ferry passenger traffic to resume. I'm grateful to listeners who suggest items for the programme and to Eugene Furlong in Cork, who writes to recall that March 13 is the anniversary of the Coast Guard R117 helicopter tragedy in 2017 on the West Coast, when the crew of four were killed, Captains Dara Fitzpatrick and Mark Duffy and winch crew Paul Ormsby and Kieran Smith. A moment to remember them and the rescue work of the Coast Guard. And Eugene Furlong also pointed out that it was in March 18, 1967 that the then worst environmental pollution in the world was caused by an oil supertanker. The captain's decision caused the Torrey Canyon to go onto the rocks. 30,000 tonnes of crude oil spilled out in short order. By Easter Monday of that year, the remaining 89,000 tonnes had followed. It was the worst oil spill that the world had seen at the time. We'll be recounting that historical maritime story later in the programme. 
In our last edition, I reported the setting up of the new Seafood Task Force by Minister for the Marine Charlie McConnellogue to deal with the impact on the fishing industry and on the coastal communities that depend on it of the Brexit agreement. And he admitted at his first meeting that there will be a loss of 43 million euros a year in fish quotas with knock-on effects on marine support industries and our coastal communities. The task force is chaired by former chief executive of Board Bia, Aidan Cotter, and the fishing industry organisations are represented. Regrettably, the national media, print and broadcast, largely ignores the crisis in the fishing industry, so there was little reportage of what happened at the first task force meeting. I got an account of that from the chief executive of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation, Patrick Murphy, in Castletown Bear. The industry in this issue is 100% united and it's not just the producer organisations but it's also the processors and also the co-ops and there are three key points that we're looking for um, that we wanted to be put at the top of the references and that is burden sharing without question. Number two is the financial compensation or package that's to be given to the industry in the short term is to be directed to the ones that are most adversely affected, which is the fishing fleet. And uh, number three is that it is of utmost importance that this task force is kept in situ until we make sure that the coastal communities are protected. This isn't a job that will be done in a week or two or a month or two. This has a longevity, and the longevity is for at least the outcome of the review of the common fishery policy uh, that's to take place in the next uh, two years. So we have to prepare for that, um, Tom. And was there any discussion, Patrick, on the, the decommissioning, which a lot of people aren't, weren't happy about? Yeah, we discussed it, and we gave the same views that we've always given, Tom. Um, decommissioning has happened far too often in this country, and decommissioning is an end of a way of life for many coastal communities around our uh, coastline. We gave examples of that, and um, in my own area, um, the devastation that uh, we've seen as a direct result of um, decommissioning, where fishing is a, is a, is a memory, um, and we don't want that to continue around our coastline. So we said that's the last, last, last option that we would entertain. We are not naive to think, Tom, that we can rule anything in or out. It's the last option that we would dare even look at. So that's where we were with decommissioning. The tie-up scheme as well was mentioned, Tom, and um, if it's going to be the same scheme as that was introduced uh, during the COVID, um, it's not going to have uh, uh, a result that I think the minister himself is looking for. And um, unless that is addressed then there's no point in, in, in bringing that in either because it didn't succeed the last time and it won't succeed the next time. So it would have to be redesigned to suit the, what it is designed for. If you want boats to tie up, then you'd have to give them the financial wherewithal to be able to tie up. And if you want to rotate the fleet to make it fair, then it has to be balanced. Um, and that's the discussion for that would have to be held within the task force. 
Patrick Murphy of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation. In the Marine Times newspaper editorial this month, the point is made that the Brexit agreement shows the phrase our partners in Europe, often used politically and by government spokespersons, is a nonsense when the way in which the Irish fishing industry has been treated in the Brexit agreement with the UK is considered. A number of emails now for our monthly book award, Irish Natural Resources from the Sea, such as oil and gas, are the subject of one which says, The government has ceased issuing exploration licences, so when current supply production ends before 2030, we'll be dependent on Putin's Russia for supplies to supplement renewables. Surely it would be better to have our own indigenous supplies than be dependent on Putin and his oligarchs. And Sean Doherty writes from Waterford about homelessness, a blight on the country and needing a complex solution, he says, suggesting that around most harbours, quays and marinas, there are boats that have beautiful living accommodation. Could water communities, which are part of life in many parts of the world, be developed here, he asks, saying there are indications that this is happening. Send your letters and comments. They're very welcome by email to us at maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Now to the Torrey Canyon disaster. And that happened after the captain countermanded the tanker's first officer, who at around 6.30am on the 18th of March 1967 had noted that the supertanker, at over 900 feet long, was off course and heading into the channel between the City Isles and the mainland on the southwest coast of England, a dangerous place. So the first officer ordered a change of course. The captain countermanded that. His order had horrendous consequences. Justin Marr recalls the story. Atlantic breakers, which are the glory of the Cornish coast, roll in today poisoned and polluted. A tragedy such as Britain has never experienced before. The captain's decision to not change course would result in the Tory Canyon supertanker striking Pollard's Rock on the Seven Stones Reef. In the collision, she suffered damage to her keel over more than half her length. 30,000 tonnes of crude oil spilled out in short order. By Easter Monday of that year, the remaining 89,000 tonnes had followed. It was the worst oil spill that the world had seen at the time. The southwest coast was a battle area. Civilians, 2,000 soldiers and Royal Marines grappled with this stupendous task of trying to fight off the oil. The oil that spurted from the Tory Canyon's wreckage ended up affecting hundreds of miles of coastline along Britain, France, Guernsey and Spain. It was the first major oil spill in British and European waters, causing enormous damage to marine life and local people's livelihoods. Beaches were left knee-deep in sludge. More than 15,000 seabirds were killed. Clogged up with thick oil, they were washed up onto the shores. It would take some species decades to recover from the population loss. Giant oil slicks, 35 miles long and 15 miles wide, in places 10 inches thick, formed a threat to the coasts of West England and Brittany on a scale never before experienced. A Unilever chemical company, Prices Brumbra, supplied a concentrated detergent raw material, one of the main constituents for the emulsifier used to break up the oil. Each of the bigger tankers leaving the Merseyside plant 
contained enough detergent concentrate for 20,000 gallons of emulsifier. The operation to clean up Cornwall's beaches involved hundreds of military personnel, volunteer firemen, local fishermen, municipal workers and volunteers. But in their rush to deal with the massive oil spill, the seas and beaches around the area were sprayed extensively with toxic detergents to emulsify and disperse the crude oil. These detergents were made from products originally used to clean surfaces in ships' engine rooms, with no concerns over their toxicity. Six months after the spill, some of the beaches that weren't treated with detergents had returned to pristine condition, whilst the treated beaches had become a wasteland. Many of the beaches and cliff areas would bear the mark of the detergents for decades. Nine days after being on the reef, the tanker broke in two, spilling more of her 36 million gallons of oil into the sea, with most of it sweeping onto the sandy shores. The Tory Canyon was part of a new generation of expanded supertankers. Her 60,000-ton capacity had been doubled after being enlarged in Japan. At over 900 feet long, she was the largest vessel ever to be wrecked at the time. Recovering her would prove incredibly difficult. Poor weather prevented her from being salvaged, while an attempt to tow the vessel led to an explosion that would fatally injure the chief salver. Finally, the government decided to bomb the wreck and its oil slick to try and sink the ship and burn the oil. It sunk the ship, but it didn't deal with the oil, which would do the most lasting damage. Jet planes from the British Air Force bombed the ship with 42,000-pound high-explosive bombs. Smoke billows up from the hulk of the ship, but despite the barrage of bombs, napalm and rockets, oil continued to spread over the troubled waters of Britain's coasts. At the time, the Tory Canyon sinking was the costliest shipping disaster ever. The British and French governments made claims against the owners of the vessel, the Union Oil Company of California, who had registered the ship in Liberia. In traditional maritime law, ships can sue and be sued, but their liability is limited to the value of the ship and its cargo. After the Tory Canyon was wrecked, its value was that of one remaining lifeboat worth $50, or one one-hundred-and-sixty-thousandth of the damages. Liberian law didn't provide for direct liability of the ship's owners, so the British government served a writ against them by arresting the Tory Canyon's sister ship, the Lake Pelourd, when she put in for provisions in Singapore. A young British lawyer, Anthony O'Connor, passed himself off as a whiskey salesman to board the ship and attached the writ to its mast. The Union and Oil Company eventually settled with the British and French governments for $7 million. Awesome smoke pall from the bombed tanker 16 miles away, rising thousands of feet, almost resembling an atomic mushroom. How to prevent similar tragedies, nations will have to learn. The disaster led to many changes in international regulations, such as the International Convention on Civil Liability for Oil Pollution Damage of 1969, which imposed strict liability on ship owners without the need to prove negligence. And it would be a major factor in the development of the 1974 International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships. But this hasn't solved the problem of oil spills and their impact. Since the Exxon Valdez oil spill in March of 1989, there have been 9,500 spills worldwide. Just this month, Israel's Environmental Protection Ministry said they had identified a Panama flag tanker called Emerald, which was smuggling oil to Syria in breach of international sanctions, as responsible for the oil spill that had affected almost the entire coastline of Israel. Over 50 years on, 
Whilst technology and regulations have improved, our demand for oil will have tankers like the Torrey Canyon circling the world for a long time to come. Justin Maher reporting on the horrendous consequences of a captain's decision and how the Charlie Canyon supertanker went on the rocks. Next to our offshore island communities and hello to Rhoda Twombly, Secretary of Kogal Ilana Heron, the Islands Federation, living on Inishard Island in Clue Bay on the Mayo coastline. Hello there, Tom. I hope you're weathering the storms and staying safe from the coronavirus. Fine weather is on the way, or so they tell me. The days are already getting that little bit longer, and vaccinations have begun on several of the offshore islands. I asked my fellow islanders what's happening on their islands and heard back from several, including Chloe O'Malley, the development manager on Inishir. She writes, all is well on Inishir. We've had 50 of our elderly residents vaccinated. Our neighboring island of Inishman should soon be receiving their first round of vaccines for the elderly. Our primary and secondary schools are reopening, and it's lovely to see the island rush hour again of morning traffic with children running and cycling from the villages to school. Spring is truly in the air and heartening to see the new baby calves and lambs dancing in the fields. There's a beautiful field of daffodils blooming down by the lake. Inishir Islanders are resilient by nature and have shown great strength to endure the challenges of COVID-19. We're very proud of the great efforts made by the community to protect and look out for one another during COVID restrictions. Lots of people are sowing their potatoes and preparing their gardens with local seaweed to fill the soil with nutrients for the growing season ahead. As the old saying goes, whoever does not sow in the spring does not reap in the fall. There is much concern surrounding plans for COVID-19 vaccinations on our offshore islands. Similar to the mainland, supply issues have frustrated some planned group vaccinations. Other factors have had to be considered for islands. Is there a resident doctor or nurse? Is there appropriate refrigeration? Is there a clinic or suitable vaccination area? These are just three questions to be answered. Every island has a different set of circumstances to consider. Some offshore islands have started vaccinations with their elderly residents first up. Others are starting this week. While supply of vaccine is a problem, lack of communication to island GPs and residents is another. Of greater concern is the fact that while it was originally thought that residents would get the injection on their home island, this isn't proving to be the case for some communities. The residents of the Cork Islands, those relatively close to the mainland, as well as Ilongkira, which is 13 kilometers off the coast, are being made to travel to mainland surgeries for their vaccinations. This is wildly inappropriate for all residents, but especially for the elderly and those who have been isolating for the past year. The age and vulnerability of these islanders not to mention the number of possibly dangerous contacts they all make on their multiple journeys to a mainland clinic should not be discounted. This is very unsatisfactory situation, showing a lack of foresight or consideration. 
Through workshops held via Zoom on the Irish Islands and other members of the European Small Islands Federation, housing was noted as the top challenge to island growth and sustainability. As such, Cogolilamairn is creating a housing forum to identify specific causes and possible solutions to this situation. The public will be welcome to add their voice to this forum and notice will be given on social media and through the co-ops and development offices. But for now, it's lawn from the islands. Thanks, Rhoda. And it's to be hoped those difficulties you outline will be remedied. Our island communities are a vital part of the culture of this nation. From Anishlar, we end this voyage of the Maritime Ireland radio show. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the community of the sea. The programme and podcast comes from the historic coastal town of Yall on the East Cork coastline and CRY 104FM Yall and is also broadcast in Cork on Bear Island Radio, UCC Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio and in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Bell Mullet. On Southwest Clare Radio, Radio Kirkabashkeen. On West Limerick, 102 FM and Tipbit West Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple, Mixcloud, Spotify and the marinetimes.ie. Our website is tommacsweenymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. And our email is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Our phone and text number is 0872 555 197. That's 0872 555 197. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>